Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Today I want to bring an encouraging message, a comforting message. Some might call this a deep theological truth, but it's very practical. It's called divine providence. Divine providence. But before we kind of jump into Genesis here, let me kind of illustrate divine providence for you. There's a day that's living in infamy. We often call it 9-11, September 2001. And you, you say, why is this day so famous for e- even people outside the United States? And I got some various pictures here of the twin, well, that used to be the Twin Towers in New York City, USA. That's what it looked like before September 11, 2001, before hijackers that were associated with Al-Qaeda actually took control of two early morning Los Angeles-bound flights. By the way, both Boeing 767 jetliners. And soon after takeoff from the Boston airport, they, they took control of the, the jets. And in its final moments, American Airlines Flight 11 flew south over New York City there and crashed at roughly 444 miles per hour or 700, roughly 700 kilometers an hour into the northern facade of the World Trade Center. It was 8.46 a.m impacting between the 93rd and the 99th floors was the first one. And 17 minutes later, United Airlines Flight 175 approached from the southwest over the New York Harbor and crashed into the southern tower between the 77th and 85th floor, going approximately 870 kilometers an hour. In addition to... uh, severing numerous load-bearing columns on the perimeter and inflicting other structural damage. The resulting explosions in in each of those towers ignited 10,000 gallons of fuel, jet fuel. Of course, along with all the other stuff that was in the office buildings there. And the devastating results was that both of the towers ended up collapsing as as you can see in these photos here. In total, 2,750 people were killed. In some ways, it's a blessing that it was so early in the morning before many of the office staff hadn't even got to the building yet. By the way, it included 175 passengers and crew that were aboard those two jets. And besides that, there were two other jets that ended up crashing that day. One jet crashed into a field because of the heroism of several of the passengers. There's been books and movies done on that sort of thing. Uh, Some of the passengers had heard about the news of the jets crashing into the World Trade Center. And so they decided to take out the hijackers. One of the planes was supposed to crash into the White House. They were hoping to kill the president and his staff but the passengers were able to take out the plane and then eventually crash into a field in Pennsylvania. 
Another jet was actually driven into the Pentagon building, killing many more people. And after that, I heard about, talk about God's providence. Uh, we heard about some of our friends who work at the Pentagon. God saved their lives, miraculously saved their lives. Uh, one of the offices that was struck by the jet that hit the Pentagon was some of our friends worked there. One of my friends was sent off on an errand by his boss, and, and his boss ended up dying. God saved his life because his boss had sent him on an errand. Some people will say, well, what, what if anything did God have to do with all of that? And the Bible's answer, by the way, is clear on this. And so my friends, the essence of biblical faith is taking God at his word, is Hard as this might be to understand, we need to take God at His word. It's important that Christians not only say what God says about His relationship to these kinds of events. By the way, this would include earthquakes in New Zealand, tsunamis, tornadoes, volcanoes, whatever. It's important for us to understand what God says about his relationship to these kind of events, and to say it the way God says it. The Bible presents an inspired model of God's mind and his means and his actions by which you and I can discern God's hand in his providence, his actions in this world. And so apart from the revelation of the Bible here, we have nothing to help us to understand this. And, and how do we respond rightly to life? God's not left us without himself, without a witness in this world. And so the subject of our study today is the providence of God, or God's providence. And I'm going to attempt to answer several questions that uh, you might have about this very important subject. What is providence what role does it play in human history what what part does it play in your life in particular and as you can see i well i hope you can see the providence of god is just not an interesting theory it's not abstract theological concept it's actually intensely practical and it's something at least for me it's been radically life changing and i hope if you're not familiar with the providence of god i hope you will become very familiar with it and very comforted and encouraged by it but i i want to give a warning here the study of providence does raise some very hard questions after all we're just finite creatures we are struggling to comprehend an infinite God, we don't see everything and understand everything. How do you comprehend the doings of an infinite, incomprehensible God? It's just not possible. So take heed, my friends. We need a measure of faith here. A measure of faith is not based on whether we can reconcile everything with our limited minds or limited logic uh, with our limited personal experiences. But what we do have is the Bible. And, and we need to use the Bible to use that as a grid to, to sieve through and filter through 
what happens in our lives and in this world. The fact is nothing happens. We well, here, Here's the fact. Things happen we just don't understand, right? Do you know everything? Can you see everything? No. Sometimes we seemingly senseless things tax my faith, challenge my faith. Probably the same with you. Make us wonder whether anyone really is in charge of, of anything in this world. Some of us might be asking if what's just what is God doing? And so there's at least three explanations for all of the events and things that happen in our lives. Here, here's the three options. You can believe in pure chance. Some might call that fate or fortune or coincidence or just it's an accident or luck or, or some might even call it a fluke. It's just pure chance. Well, that's one way of looking at the events that happen in our lives. Or some might, uh, another option, as you can see, there's just, you know, life in general, this world and the events is just a cosmic contest. There's this ongoing struggle between God and Satan. You know, who's going to win? You know, it goes back and forth between God and Satan. Sometimes Satan wins, sometimes God wins. It's a cosmic contest. Or we can choose to believe in divine control. That's the third option. Where there's this overruling will of an all-powerful being whom we call God. So who's in charge? Very important question, is it not? Who's in charge? And to answer this question... We need to understand that the doctrine of God's providence is rooted in the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And I want you to notice at the very heart of the word sovereignty, I've put it on the screen here for you, is the root word, the root word there is reign. You'll find the word reign in the word sovereignty, and, and I hope that word's going to help you to understand what sovereignty is all about. So what is God's sovereignty? Some might ask, what is that all about? What does it mean for God to rule and reign over His creation? Well, the sovereignty of God refers to His undisputed authority and rule over every aspect of His creation. In other words, God is the unrivaled King of all. No being, by the way, that includes human beings as well as angelic beings, which would include Satan, is capable of stopping God or frustrating God and His purposes. Satan cannot do anything to stop God and His purposes. So my friends, we need to understand that beliefs have consequences. Your, your belief on this is going to affect your whole life. And so I want just want to lay this out for you. From the beginning here. If God does not rule supreme, if He is not sovereign, then He's not God. He's not the God of the Bible if God is not supreme and He is not ruling and reigning supreme over His creation. So, before we kind of jump into this, let me just encourage you to do some further reading on this. I'll give you uh, three helpful uh, books that have been helpful to me, encouraging to me, 
God's used in my life. Uh, here's three that, that, that I think is some of the best. Dr. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Very helpful. Dr. Leighton Talbert's book, Not By Chance. And Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God. Very helpful. That one, by the way, is in the church library. I encourage you to read that if you've never done so. So let's just take a, a very brief journey, various scripture passages we'll look at today in search of the answer to this very important question of who is in charge? Who is in charge? And so I'm going to give you various truths uh, coming from the Bible here. And the first one is in Genesis 18. Here's the first truth. It's on the screen here for you. That God can do anything. Now that comes with a qualifier, though. God can do anything that doesn't violate His nature and His character. For example, the Bible says God cannot lie. God cannot sin. Because God is truth. So he's not going to violate his nature. Uh, so, so there is a certain self-induced limit to what God can do. So as long as it fits within his character and nature, he can do anything. Now let's look at a very practical story here that brings the truth to light. Genesis 18, verse 14, and then we'll talk more about the context here in a moment, but... All right, so Genesis 18, look at just one verse here in verse 14. The the Bible says this in verse 14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. Now, this is talking about Sarah and Abraham. So notice what it says. At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, hopefully you know the context there. This is not just a theoretical question posed in some sterile academic uh, hall somewhere in a university, okay? The context of that particular question is profoundly practical. The context here, of course, Genesis 18, let's just read it a little bit here. Because you need to understand, Abraham and Sarah are elderly, way beyond the years of having children. Okay, that's the context here. So let's just back up a little bit before we think about that question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Look at verse 10. Genesis 18, verse 10. It says, The Lord said... I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So that's the context. God had just promised, by the way, for the seventh time, if you've read through Genesis, God promised seven times that 
an aged and childless couples by the name of Abraham and Sarah would actually conceive and bear a child of their own. So think about that. Just think about that. If enabling a dead womb of a 90-year-old woman to be able to conceive and bear a child is not too hard for the Lord, what other kinds of equally applicable things might be not too hard for the Lord in our lives? Just think about the applications there. You need to think about it. We, we often say that something is just too good to be true. You ever said that? Oh, it's too good to be true. Really? <laughs> is there any such category when God should be entering into the discussion? The answer is no. God can do anything. A second truth we need to understand as we think about God's providence is that God makes everyone. Now, these are all just various strings, if you will. And what, what, I, what I'm going to attempt to do is take all these strings and we're going to kind of tie them all together. And by the time we're done, I hope what you'll end up with is a very strong rope, a solid rope that you can hold on to. And it doesn't matter what comes into your life. You've got a solid foundation in God himself. So here's the second truth, that God makes everyone. Look, and I'll put the scriptures on here on the screen for you. Look at Exodus chapter 4. And again, we'll, we'll look at the context here. But look at Exodus 4. And notice what this verse says. So here's the context. Moses is given signs from God. He's, he's seen this bush on fire. God speaks to Moses through the, the, the fire in the bush there. And God tells Moses to, to go to Egypt and to tell the king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go. Let the Hebrews go. So that's the context. But look at verse chapter 4, verse 11, please. Then the Lord said to him, Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, remember here the context. All, all Bible passages have a context. So what's the context? Well, you got to really back up into chapter 3. And, and then moving on here into chapter 4, where we have Moses' call from God. And God gives Moses this amazing mission. Because Moses was out in the wilderness. He's watching over the sheep, and God speaks to him from the burning bush here. And God told Moses to go to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh to let the Hebrews go. And what did Moses do? <laughs> right? We would like to say Moses immediately says, Yes, I'll do that for you, God. I will do exactly what you commanded me to do. Is that what Moses did? No. Moses immediately starts making five excuses of why he can't obey God. He did exactly what I do, and what you probably do as well. 
So he makes all these excuses. One of them is, uh, well, who am I? <laughs> who am I? What authority do I have? Well, what if they don't believe me? <laughs> and so with that kind of little background there, Moses making excuses, let's read the previous verse, verse 10. Here's the excuse, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Look at God's solution in verse 11 and 12. Here's God's solution for Moses' excuse. Verse 11 says, The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. By the way, God was the solution to all of Moses' excuses. You can read that whole context there, chapter 3 and 4. Now, verse 11 might shock some of you. Some of you may not like verse 11, frankly. I know some Christians don't. We have difficulty accepting that God is the one who gives birth to healthy people. But it goes beyond that, though, doesn't it? Because God God goes a step even further. It says that He is the creator of not just healthy people. God's also the creator of handicapped people. Did you notice that? Who is the one who makes people not able to speak? Who is the one who who blocks people's ears from being able to hear? Who is the one who makes your eyes blind? God's claiming the authority and the ability for that. So God makes everyone the way you are. He's in control. A third truth in regards to divine providence is this, that God can do everything He says. God makes statements in the Bible and He fulfills those. So look at, uh, here's a a helpful passage in Numbers. So just turn over a couple books. you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Numbers chapter 11. I hope you understand these stories in the Bible are not there just for your amusement. They're not there just for your entertainment. I've heard somebody say that the stories, particularly Old Testament stories, are a declaration by God of God. That's not original with me. I heard someone else say that a long time ago. In other words, those Old Testament stories are teaching you about God. So that's why we're looking at these. You can learn a lot about God by reading the stories or narratives in the Bible. So here's another one that shows us that God can do everything He says. So here the people are complaining. The Israelites or Hebrews are in the wilderness. The elders have been appointed to aid Moses. And notice what Numbers 11, verse 23 says. Verse 23 says, The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come 
true for you or not. Now, that's the one verse I wanted to highlight. But again, let's look at the context. Take some time to recreate this scene in your mind here. So the people are in the wilderness. They've been whining about God's gracious provision of manna. Whatever that manna is, it was food. It was sustaining them. Now, I'm sure you wouldn't want to be eating the same thing over and over again. Even if it's good, you still wouldn't. You'd probably start complaining about it eventually. Which reminds me of a time my wife and I, we were at a church and somebody in the church owned a McDonald's franchise. And I thought, cool, this guy's providing for us to eat lunch every day that week at McDonald's. I thought, oh, oh, that's great. That's what I thought at first. But by the end of the week, I was like, oh, I have to go to McDonald's and eat. Oh, it got really hard eating the same thing. And that's exactly what's happening here to the Hebrews. They're whining and grumbling and complaining. You know, all we have to eat is manna. Oh, woe is me. So that's the context. They're tired of it. They wanted some meat. And so they were discontent and they're weeping and moaning. Moses, give us something we can sink our teeth into. We need some meat. And so look at verse 10. Numbers 11, verse 10. Verse 10 says, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. Now I want you to read what God said to Moses. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that got some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before Him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? We'll stop there. So Moses could not believe what God said. Neither was he eager to make this announcement to the people. His credibility is on the line here. In fact, his sanity would probably be questioned. <laughs> you know, we're going to 
we're going to wrap Moses up in one of those white coats where he can't move his arm and stick him in a padded room where he can't hurt himself, right? And by the way, more importantly, God's credibility was on the line here. Look, For example, look at verse 21. Verse 21. Uh, verse 21 says, But Moses said, The people among whom I am, I am number 600,000 on foot... You have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? Okay, do you, do you get the point? Some say there's at least two million people to feed here. That's a lot of mouths to feed. Where is enough meat going to come from to feed over two million people? And so if you're reading between the lines, you can just hear Moses thinking, you have got to be kidding me. Has God forgotten how many people there are to feed and that, you know, they're, they're not at a grocery store here. There's no grocery stores around. They're out in the desert. They're in the desert. Where are they going to get that much meat? Where is all this meat going to come from? And by the way, it's not just for one day. We're talking an entire month here, and they're in the wilderness. And, and you, you, you know, some people, if you don't know the end of the story, you'd say, yeah, right. That's impossible. What's God's reply to Moses? Well, look at verse 23. Here's God's reply. The Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And so the idiom referring to the Lord's hand there being shortened, please understand that the idea is there, it's, uh, is, is his reach, uh, is, is his ability overreached? Uh, the hand being shortened has reference to one's word going beyond his ability. Uh, is he promising more than he can deliver here? And so God's asking Moses, have I suddenly become impotent? Have I suddenly become no longer all-powerful? <laughs> By the way, this question has timeless application for you, my friend. You might be asking that question. Maybe there's times in your life you've asked that question. And because this question applies to every promise in the Bible, we need to think about this. Can we trust God? Can you trust God? Well, can you trust God? Look at verse 31. Look at verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea. Let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. 
Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. Wow. Now here's the point, my friends. God did exactly what he said he would do. And by the way, that is consistent. God always does what he said he would do. And that's the point we need to remember. Can you trust God? The answer is yes, my friend, because God always does what he says he will do. A fourth truth of God's divine providence here is that God rules all existence. God rules all existence. Let's look at an example in Deuteronomy 32. Next book in your Bible, Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. Verse 39. So let's just read one verse here. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. says, notice quotation marks here. I hope you see that. It says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Now the context here is God speaking. Now you've got to go back a little ways to know that it's God speaking. So these are God's words. The whole context here is the song of Moses. So let me ask you this. Over what realms or experience does God here claim absolute authority? This is important because notice God's claiming authority over the realm of life, death, even harm, and your health. By the way, there's one word of caution that needs to be made here. The presence of negative circumstances does not in and of itself necessarily indicate a loss of God blessing or it doesn't necessarily mean there's a, there's a break in your relationship to God. Job's the classic example of that. Job's suffering didn't happen in his life because he had sinned. God said he was blameless. There's other examples we could talk about. Joseph. Joseph was not sold into slavery and put in prison because he was a sinner. Jesus did not suffer in the center of God's will because he was a sinner. Because he was in God's will that Jesus suffered and went to the cross. So we need to remember that God rules all existence. A fifth truth of divine providence is this, that God rules all circumstances. God rules all circumstances. Let's look at a clear example in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2.
Okay, the context we're looking at here is Hannah's prayer. This is Hannah's prayer. God provided a child for her. When her womb had been closed by God, God opens her womb so she can have a son named Samuel. I want you to see these words in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. Verse 6 says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. Again, look at, look at this. To what areas does God's providence extend? It's crystal clear here, my friends. Look at the text because it says God's providence extends to poverty and wealth. How much money you have, in other words, how much possessions you have, it has been ordained by God. Humiliations even mentioned here. Exaltation. So how much fame or attention you, you receive, how much importance you have in this life is ordained by God, comes from God. See, here's the point, my friends. God rules over all circumstances in your life. Sixth truth of God's providence is this, that God does all He pleases. Look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Verse 19 says, verse 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Let me ask you this. Does the words and terminology leave any room for exemptions to God's rule? Is there any zone, is there any area where God's dominion does not reach? Do you see any of any exemptions here? No. Borders are non-existent in God's kingdom. Nothing is beyond the reach of His authority and His control. So what response should that kind of truth receive from us? What's the appropriate response? Well, the text tells us the the appropriate response, because look at verse 20. Here is the appropriate response to divine providence in all areas of our lives. Verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, O you His angels, You mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The appropriate response is to glorify God, to praise Him, to exalt Him, to magnify Him. Because God does all He pleases. The seventh truth of divine providence is God's rule is unrivaled. It is unrivaled. I want you to look at God's words in Isaiah chapter 45. 
Isaiah 45 is very clear, I believe. Isaiah 45. I wish we could read more, but we'll just look at a short passage here. Isaiah 45, verse 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I hope that's clear. We often assume that all good things come from God. We, We like to give Him credit for that. But do you give God credit for the so-called bad things as well? Or do we like to assign those to Satan? God gets, you know what I mean? Sometimes we do that. We give credit to God for good things. He's blessed me. Things are going well. But when the doctor tells you you have cancer and you're going to be dead in a couple months, well, no, that, that's, that, oh, we'll now assign that to Satan, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Some people do that. And that's false to do this. It's an unbiblical assumption that actually gives Satan far too much credit. It's attributing to Satan far more power than he actually possesses. Satan can't give you cancer. He can't. He doesn't have that ability, that power to do that. And so contrary to popular misconception, Satan is not somehow God's evil counterpart. See, Satan's Satan's counterpart, sorry, is the archangel Michael. You need to remember that Satan, just like Michael, is an angel. They're both created beings. And so no one created God, so they can't possibly be equal. And so they they just can't be equal. And so look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed it, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. We'll stop there. I hope you get the point. God is in control, and therefore we can trust Him. Last truth. The eighth truth of God's providence is that God's rule is unquestionable. We should never question God's rule and His authority and His power. So let's look at the prophet Amos. 
Amos. I know that's a little book way in the back of your Old Testament, hard to find at times. Amos, just before Jonah, Obadiah, after Joel. Okay. Amos, chapter 3. Amos 3, look at just one verse here. Verse 6, Amos 3, verse 6 says, Is a trumpet blown in a city, and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Let's just get practical here for a moment. Because there's there's been people who are giving God... credit, shall we say, for disasters in New Zealand. I've heard it's been in the news, in the newspapers. People claiming that earthquakes are a result of God's hand. He's the one who's done the earthquakes. Well, the earthquake in Christchurch, Kaikoura, where else in New Zealand, is God the one who's done that? Well, according to this, it is. The Lord has done it. And so what is the understood answer here to this rhetorical question? So like a master debater here, Amos, he's been conditioning us for the correct answer to this very difficult question. And uh, you you have to read the whole book. He's been stringing together uh, a succession of easier questions for us to answer to get to this maybe one that we might consider a little more difficult. So bear with me, but let's look at the previous context here. Look at verse 1. Look at these questions that Amos, like a master debater, is asking here. And by the way, the answer for all of them is no. So look at verse 1. Amos 3, verse 1 says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? What's the answer? Uh, God's saying the rhetorical question should be answered with a no. Verse 4, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? And then we come to this hard one in verse 6. <laughs> this one applies to us, doesn't it? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So the answer is no. Now it's one thing to accept this truth just kind of abstractly, theoretically. It's quite another to make application personally in our own lives. Very easy for us to say we live in Hamilton. We're not in Christchurch. We're not down in Canterbury or Kaikoura. And to put a name on that city and a date on that disaster, well, does that change anything for you? Can we accept that? Hopefully no. It doesn't mean that God inspired or initiated evil 
Acts. God's not the author of, of sin, but he does permit evil. He permits it. Why? Well, I don't have the time to answer all of that today, but I do want to tell you, what is your first duty? Your first duty is to bow before God. To bow before the declarations of God's Word. Now what do you do when you you come to a wall of mystery? You don't understand what God is doing. You bow down and you worship. You do what the psalmist did in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Your spirit then will be able to grapple with the question of why. Well, we don't have time to get into all the various areas of life where God's providence encompasses, but I hope you understand it's basically everything. And so you need to understand, this is not just abstract theology. This is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, and this is where you and I live all of the time. It's very practical. So here's the question, my friends. How seriously and, and literally are we willing to take the Bible? How, how, how seriously are you going to take God at His word here? I, I hope this collective weight and the force of these Bible passages are bearing down on you. Their meaning should be clear. Their claims are unmistakable. These passages, I, I hope, are magnifying God, helping us to see God a little better. So what have we seen here? here? Here's an overview of divine providence, okay? Let's be crystal clear here. That God can do anything He says. That God will do everything He pleases. That God cannot be thwarted in what He purposes. Not even Satan can, can stop Him. You can't either, by the way. And then number four, that God will not be thwarted in what He pleases. And five, that God rules providentially over good and bad. And so let me ask you this. If God's not in charge, then what are the alternatives? Well, what did we start with at the beginning? What's the alternatives? It's scary. If God's not in charge, it is really scary. Because then we conclude that well, we're just essentially at the mercy of blind fate. We're at, we're at the mercy of unreliable chance, unpredictable luck, or coincidence, or some impersonal force out there. Well, I hope you've seen the Bible shoots all that down. Well, that's one option. But if you, if you opt for God's control, but you somehow wish to deny that God's sovereignty does not include the bad things that happen in your life, well, then you, you have a couple options. First, that some things take God by surprise. And God is sitting in heaven, and when the doctor says, congratulations, you have cancer, that God's sitting in heaven and saying, oh no, I didn't see that one coming. Well, that's, you know, God, God's surprised and God is no longer all-knowing? Well, that's what some people believe. Uh, the second, you could say that some things 
that God is, is somehow unable to prevent. So God's no longer all-powerful. He can't stop that. And we know the Bible clearly says that God is all-knowing and all-powerful, both at the same time. And so if we rule out chance in God's control, then what are we left with, my friend? We're left with a very disturbing option. We're left with someone else in charge. A lot of people think that's Satan or the devil. Heaven forbid, right? We don't want to leave Satan in charge. That's scary. That's your worst nightmare. So, here's another question to think about. Are we forced to choose between an all-knowing God who is not all-powerful? Or are you, are you choosing between an all-powerful God who doesn't know everything? Do, do you see the conflict there? And it was that, that idea, by the way, was made popular by Rabbi Harold Kushner. He wrote a very popular book back in his day when bad things happened to good people, which I don't agree with his book. But anyway, here's basically what he said, a, a quote. Uh, this is a quote from his book that says, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives, but sometimes even he can't bring that about. It's too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims, end quote. So my friends, l- listen closely here, okay? Because the Bible teaches us that we can have it both ways. See, this is where we we need to rein in our logic and and our our reasoning, reining it into what God says in the Bible. The Bible teaches us we do have it both ways, that God is all-powerful and that God is all-knowing. So here's a good good working definition of providence that I got from... Dr. Grudem's systematic theology book, he said, quote, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, directs them to fulfill his purposes end quote so here's my last question for you to think about what effect does god desire his providence to have on your attitude and your reaction to the circumstances in your life what what effect should this glorious truth have on your life and on my life well option one is (laughs) well we can either uh, get into the mode of presumption, become lazy, despair can happen, become irresponsible, or I hope the uh, option number two is, is where you'll land, is that you will submit to an all-knowing, all-powerful God. And that you will, God will give you the faith to believe what the Bible says about Him. And that When you know that, you'll be encouraged by that. And it'll give you confidence. And when you know who God is, then you can have joy despite the events and the circumstances of your life. It's possible. Because joy doesn't come from just 
having the, the right circumstances. Now, I like what Jerry Bridges said in his book, Trusting God. Quote, here's on the screen. Quote, we must be careful not to use God's sovereignty as an excuse to shirk the duties that he has commanded us in the scriptures. Our duty is found in the revealed will of God in the scriptures. Our trust must be in the sovereign will of God. End quote. Notice the right balance there. Very easy to come off the road and fall in ditches here. There's ditch on both sides of the road here. So here's the right balance that we see in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the word of this law. I've underlined those words, do all, for you, because, my friends, we do all that the Bible says. Believing what the Scriptures have revealed about our amazing God. And so may God help us here to be balanced. May His grace enable you to know the truth and to live that truth out in your life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for these glorious truths. Thank You for revealing Yourself, Your very nature and Your character, even in the Old Testament narratives and even in the poetry sections of the Bible, like Psalms, thank you. You've been so good to us in revealing yourself and your ways to us. So may we know you. May you continually show us yourself. May we grow in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it bring us great comfort. May we submit. Give us faith. May we be encouraged. May we have confidence in You and not in in the things of this life. And as we grow to know You more, that we would have joy despite our circumstances. Do this great work in us and, and do it for Your honor and glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.